Spring-heel Jack sits in the centre of a particularly weird Venn diagram, which also features urban legends, penny dreadful serial fiction, theatre plays and modern folklore. The last sightings of him were in the early years of the 20th century, yet he still makes appearances in contemporary popular culture. But who was he, and how did the stories persist for so long? Let's find out in this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. Hello there, and welcome to Fabulous Folklore, the podcast for all things folklore, occult, and just a bit weird. I'm your host, Icy Sedgwick, blogger, fantasy author, and your guide into these rather mysterious realms. I've got some rare things to show you, so come on in, take a look around, but be careful not to touch anything. These things sometimes bite. Well, hello there and welcome back to Fabulous Folklore with me, your host, Icy Sedgwick. This is the end of Freaky February and we are moving on to a particularly interesting individual, Springheel Jack, the Victorian scourge of London. Or was he? That's what we're going to find out in today's episode. This is, as I say, the final episode in Freaky February and elsewhere we've looked at premature burial, the sinister side of Valentine's Day, cemetery superstitions and sin eaters. So it's all been a little bit dark and strange, which let's be honest with you, at this time of year, why not? Because it's very dark and strange outside. If you do hear any weird noises in the background, it's probably the wind outside because it still hasn't dropped. So I heard somebody's wheelie bin go over earlier. So that is obviously what we are dealing with here in the northeast at the moment. When this episode reaches you, if you're listening on the 29th of February, I'm actually going to be in Edinburgh, so it's probably going to be even more windy. Hurrah! Anyway, let's get on with this week's episode because there's a lot to pack in. And this particular episode was based on a blog post that just kept going and going and going. And I feel like I could probably have written a book on him, as many people have. So as I say, we're going to look at spring Jack. And he does sit at the centre of a particularly strange Venn diagram, which also features urban legends, penny dreadful serial fiction, theatre plays and modern folklore. And the last sightings of him were in the early years of the 20th century, and I mean early years, it's like 1904. But Jack still makes appearances in contemporary popular culture, including the rather excellent TV serial Houdini and Doyle, which I'm gutted that they didn't pick up for a second season, but never mind. Spring Heel Jack by Philip Pullman, The Murdoch Mysteries, The Strange Affair of Spring Heel Jack by Mark Hodder, and Captain Swing and the Electric Pirates of Sindri Island by Warren Ellis. And true, it needs later adaptations, is basically part of a vogue for all things Victoriana, and he's weirder than Jack the Ripper, and he's more mysterious than Sweeney Todd, and let's be honest, he makes a change from Dracula. But we're interested in the urban legend and to an extent the folklore of spring Jack. So we're going to find out who he was, how did the stories persist for so long and just basically whatever we can find out about him along the way. Now the very first sightings occurred in 1837 in London but the first report didn't actually appear in the newspapers until January the 9th, 1838, about sightings in Peckham. Now, Peckham now is part of London, but at the time it was a small village south of London. So a lot of what we think of as areas of London at the time would have just been really small, quite rural villages, which is just bizarre to try and imagine now. But in the days following the first report, many began to repeat the suspicion that the monster was actually a gentleman. And according to this particular theory, whoever this gentleman was had taken to dressing up and scaring people to win a bet. 
and considering the exploits of some of the upper classes, one of which we're going to meet later, this isn't entirely beyond the bounds of reason. Some people went further, theorising that spring Jack wasn't a single figure, and instead it was a group of such gentlemen, and I say gentlemen in inverted commas. And the idea that Jack was a collective really helped to explain later sightings as the work of copycats. But this first report also stirred the letter writers of London into action, and the Times printed a letter by an anonymous writer, claiming to be a barrister, on January the 11th, 1838, so just two days later. And in it, the writer repeats reports of attacks on women in Hammersmith. And during these attacks, and I quote, several young women had been readily frightened into fits, dangerous fits, and some of them had been severely wounded by a sort of claws the miscreant wore on his hands, end quote. Now, the reports evolved, and over the next sort of couple of weeks, the figure became more complicated and more elaborate, and according to Carl Bell, quote, accounts came to describe a cloaked being with fiery eyes who could vomit blue flames from its mouth and whose sharp metal talons tore the flesh of its victims, end quote. Now, the first of these newer reports came from Jane Alsop, who lived in Bearbinder Lane, and when she opened her front door just because somebody had knocked, there was a man on the doorstep who pretended to be a policeman and he said that he'd caught spring Jack and asked for a candle. Obviously, remember that at the time, the Lord Mayor had offered a £10 reward, which is about £800 now, for helping catching him. There'd been plenty of stories in the newspaper about spring Jack and his exploits, so Jane, understandably wanting to be involved in the capture, moved to fetch the candle, and it's at this point that things go quite badly wrong, because the figure then vomits these blue and white flames at her. He attacks her and he tears at her dress and hair with what she later describes feel like metallic claws. She also reported that he wore a skin-tight white costume, which she compared to an oilskin, and a helmet. Now, thankfully, our father and our sister came to our rescue and it was their testimony, along with Jane's injuries, that corroborated the story. Despite this, the officers that conducted the investigation actually concluded that Jane had been so terrified that she'd simply mistaken an ordinary attacker for spring Jack, and no one was ever brought to justice for the attack. I'm not 100% sure how you could mistake somebody vomiting flames at you, but there we go. Remember, this is also well before the time of an organised police force, and it was all a bit of a shambles, quite frankly, so there wasn't the investigation that you would sort of get a lot later around the likes of Jack the Ripper in 1888. So eight days after the attack on Jane, so this is the 28th of February, 1838, Lucy Scales reported being pounced on by a man fitting the same description. Now, Jennifer Westwood and Jacqueline Simpson claim that she'd just been reading Allsop's account in the newspaper, but Mike Dash actually sees Lucy's report as the last real sighting of Jack, but weirdly it got very little attention in the wider press. The thing that's quite interesting, though, is that the reports were varied enough to make it quite difficult to identify who or what was terrorising the city. So while Jane and Lucy's accounts were quite similar, there were loads of other ones that were just completely mad. At one point, Jack got confused with a bear and somebody else thought it was a bull and somebody else thought it was a ghost. So it made it quite difficult for people to really understand what was going on. Now, Ken Gearhard actually describes Jack as a sort of urban legendary supervillain who was, and I quote, extremely tall, pale and thin, though possessing great strength and agility, end quote. And while there were some similarities across reports, such as his helmet or his cloak, there were also many differences. And an article about him in the Manchester Courier and Lancashire General Advertiser from 1884 actually notes these variations in his appearance. So in one sighting, he's described as wearing steel armour, in another, he's wearing chainmail, and to a woman in Hammersmith, he appeared as a baboon that was six feet tall. 
And the same newspaper even commented that, and I quote, it must be noted what an exceedingly varied wardrobe this sprite must have had, rendering it very difficult, one would think, for him to move with such extensive properties with alacrity from place to place, end quote. Well, quite. In one report, he even seemed to leap into a waiting cabriolet to escape, so you do wonder how exactly is he getting between these quite separate and far-flung villages around the edge of London. Because that's basically where he seemed to prowl. He started off in the villages to the west of London, like Barnes, East Sheen, Richmond and Kingston, and then he moved on to those in the south and east of the city. Now, Mike Dash thinks that the attack on Lucy Scales in 1838 marks his last real appearance, and then other people think that Jack actually moved beyond London's confines altogether, because after this one on Lucy, there are a handful of tales, but it's a, it's a kind of thing where you're not really sure if they're genuine or not. And then there's a handful of tales in the 1840s from England's southern and eastern counties, but then he seems to go quiet, and where he does appear in newspaper reports, they're, they're rare to actually be sightings, but a lot of them are just rehashing the earlier tales. I mean, the one from 1884 that I mentioned just before there from the Manchester Courier, it's literally just talking about stuff that happened in the 1830s. So you sort of think, well, why on earth did they put a, a newspaper story in like some 50 years later about a figure from London in particular who was so much earlier in time? But this is where it then obviously gets confusing working out how many sightings there actually were. Now, Jack did reappear, albeit briefly, in 1877, and sentries on guard at the barracks in Aldershot claimed that Jack would basically appear out of nowhere, run up to them and slap them, and then disappear again. And one sentry actually claimed that he shot the figure, but it apparently had no effect. And Mike Dash points out that the illustrations that accompany these news stories usually show Jack as a typical sheet-clad phantom. And basically, given Jack's fairly unusual and somewhat recognisable appearance, it makes it a lot less likely that it was actually Jack behind these pranks at the barracks. A 1904 newspaper report from Liverpool seems to mark his actual last appearance. Weirdly, stories continue to circulate about him well into the 1930s, a century after his debut. And if you look online, sometimes you even find them from fairly recent. I mean, I saw one from 2012 and you're like, really? Come on. But the whole point of spring Heel Jack is really the springs, and this apparently explains how he was able to evade capture for so long. So having carried out his wicked deeds, he would then bounce away like a demented gummy bear. And an article in Tower Hamlet's Independent and East End local advertiser from 1904 actually refers to this ability, and it describes how Jack would suddenly disappear with terrible bounds, and it was this that earned him his nickname. Or did he? John Matthew says this aspect of Jack may have been invented by the writer Elizabeth Villiers, and she wrote a book called Stand and Deliver, which was published in 1928, which bizarrely included a chapter about Jack among tales of highwaymen. And Matthews asserts that while, yes, the tales of leaping that she includes are not unconfirmed, they haven't been confirmed either. And it's also entirely possible that the tales of Jack's feats of acrobatics actually came from the Penny Dreadfuls in which he appeared, and here everything about him was hugely exaggerated. And considering the most famous of these didn't appear until 1863, only one news story actually mentions spring boots before that date, so the idea of him bouncing and having springs in his shoes really only appears in the news stories after 1863. And a piece in the Illustrated Police News mentioned springs to his boots and that he could jump to a height of 15 or 20 feet. This report from 1877 does predate Villiers' work, but it does also still come after the Penny Dreadfuls. 
And Mike Dash notes that we do have to question the reliability of the illustrated police news. So really, we've got no way of knowing if this claim came from an eyewitness or just an imaginative journalist. And to be fair, with this particular incident, there was no coverage in the local newspapers whatsoever. It was only in the illustrated police news. So it does make it a dubious claim at best. And Dash also notes that there's actually, unfortunately, plenty of reason to doubt that he could leap such distances, mostly because the surviving first-hand reports don't mention it. Because, let's be honest, if you had seen a man do that, you'd probably mention it. But instead, they've got Jack scampering or walking away from the scene of the crime. And if you could leap tall buildings in a single bound, why would you walk? But that said, Villiers' fascination for highwaymen may even go some way to explain Jack's enduring popularity. And as Matthews explains, and I quote, Once the initial hysteria had died down, Jack became, for a time, something of an anti-hero. His ability to run rings around the police made him a figure of admiration to some, end quote. Matthews also somewhat weirdly draws parallels between Springheel Jack and the Jack in the Box, a toy commonly known by children since the 18th century. But the song that goes with the box, Pop Goes the Weasel, only really became popular during the 1830s, and Matthews tries to draw a link between the demonic figure that popped out of a child's toy with the demonic figure that was apparently capering around London at the time. Personally, I think that link is a bit of a stretch too far, but I do think that the hysteria around Jack demonstrated how easily and quickly these kind of tales would catch on in the public imagination. So if anyone starts wittering on about fake news being a modern invention because of social media, no, no, it's been going on for centuries. But who was Jack? Thing is, no one knows. And this is what makes him a little bit more exciting than he possibly should be. And the press often mentioned the third Marquis of Waterford, Henry de la Poe Beresford, in connection with the stories. And I did promise that we would come back to these gentlemen, didn't I? Now, his drunken antics earned him the nickname of the Mad Marquis. And as an example, Beresford was the party animal behind an incident in Melton Mowbray that actually gave us the phrase painting the town red. According to the website The Unredacted, a servant boy actually escaped from Jack in South London and he alleged to have seen an elaborate crest on his attacker's costume, including a W, and people surmised that that stood for Waterford. However, the website also points out that this incident doesn't appear in the newspapers of the time and it's more likely a fiction invented to support the theory at a later date. Now, to be fair, Beresford did live near the locations of the early 1837 and 1838 attacks and sightings dried up after he left London in 1842 and went back to Ireland. He died in 1859, so if he was Jack, any of the sightings that happened in the 1860s onwards are obviously a copycat. And in all honesty, it's unlikely that the perpetrator in the 1830s was the same one in the 1870s and later anyway. So the question is, how many Jacks were there in the first place, let alone throughout time? And also, nobody knows what Jack's actual motive was either, and not knowing who he was basically keeps the motive a bit of a mystery. Now, authorities referred to many of Jack's early appearances as pranks, and several newspapers also pointed out that they were convinced that robbery wasn't the motive because he never actually took anything from any of his victims, and this also helped to spread the widespread belief that the Marquis of Waterford was behind this scheme because obviously he didn't exactly need the money. But despite Jack's physical attacks on his victims, his intentions seemed to be scaring them, not killing them. And he was actually accused of murdering a prostitute in the 1840s, although Mike Dash thinks that that was actually a hoax. But the original stories from 1837 and 1838 focus solely on the torn clothes or the fact that he's frightened somebody out of their wits. 
And at one point, Jack even appears in Holland Park, which at the time was a known meeting place for prostitutes and their clients. And Matthews discusses the theory that Jack was some kind of moral vigilante, but there's not actually any proof that this was ever the case. But this itself may have come from spring Jack's entry into popular culture, because Jess Nevins explains that in 1863, he appeared in his own Penny Dreadful, spring Jack, The Terror of London, a romance of the 19th century, which lasted for about four years, and in this series, the author, Alfred Coates, turns him into an early Avenger where he's using gadgets and gizmos to help others. And he even has an alter ego, the Marquis. He's not a superhero, he's more of an early Batman. And other stage productions actually saw him as a hero, which is a far cry from the news reports that painted him as a villain. And I've even seen articles online which try to like say he was the first superhero. And like, let's be honest, he wasn't. He was knocking on people's doors and attacking them or jumping on them on the street. There is literally nothing about him that says Batman. It's very much more the Joker. But anyway, on the 1st of October 1888, the police even received a letter about the Jack the Ripper murders. And yes, they got plenty of hoax letters, but this particular sender signed this letter from Springheel Jack, the Whitechapel murderer. Now, I'm not being funny, but I can't help thinking that given the panic in Whitechapel at the time, people would remember seeing someone as outlandish as Springheel Jack in the area. So it's more likely someone sent the letter as a bit of a childish joke. So what should we think about spring Jack as this episode comes to a close? I've given you quite a lot of information so you can think about it yourself. But he is a fascinating character, let's be honest. It's also very difficult to separate the fact from fiction. And his penny dreadful and stage show exploits have basically coloured the original newspaper reports about him. If you go back and you look at the reports, they're often actually quite dry and... They're just a first-hand report of somebody essentially being attacked, so they're not very pleasant, but it's also just the fact that the person has obviously been frightened by what's happened to them. A lot of this other stuff then got added to him after the fact, and that's the stuff that then gets repeated about him as if it is fact, despite the fact a lot of it was, quite frankly, fiction. So on one hand, he's a larger-than-life quirk of London legend, and he is worthy of study for how belief in such a figure could and did spread. But on the other hand, he is also a prank that took on a life of his own once he entered popular culture. But either way, you can be certain that he will be back in one form or another. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Fabulous Folklore. I really enjoyed writing it because, like I say, I just find spring Jack is really interesting. I was quite disappointed when I read quite a lot of it and I realised how much of it was actually not true. And, it, you know, you do think, oh, well, I've, I've been believing the wrong stories all of this year, but... That's just, the, that's just the nature of the beast. And this is why doing the research into these things is so valuable, both for me and hopefully for you. So I hope that you enjoyed that. We are moving on to fortune telling in March because I did run a Twitter poll and that won over ancient Egypt. I haven't decided on a theme for April yet, so if you've got any requests, please feel free to let me know. So next week, we're going to be meeting a goddess of fate, luck and abundance. So if you're looking for somebody to, well, try and get a bit of good luck from, she is the person you need to speak to. So I will see you next week with Fortuna and I hope you have a fabulous week. Cheerio.